Well, good morning again. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we, uh, we've been marching through the book of 2 Corinthians. And um, last week was actually supposed to be uh, the sermon before, and Austin stepped in and pinch hit and did a fantastic job. I'm really grateful for his um, being able to step in and swing the bat, being a pinch hitter, and uh, hitting a home run. We're really grateful for those types of things. And today, um, because Nick is out of town, Nick asked me to close out the book of 2 Corinthians. But psych, <laughs> it's not really the end. <laughs> I'm going to close, but Nick will probably have one more message uh, with respect to 2 Corinthians uh, in the coming, coming weeks, and we'll leave that to him. So we've made it to the end of 2 Corinthians, but, but not quite, I guess. Um, we'll preach the end of the letter later on. As we begin this closing message of 2 Corinthians, I want to start by bringing your attention to a passage of Scripture that you all very know quite well, if you've been around the Word of God for any length of time. And it's this. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped and having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, almost 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. And by God's sovereign power, he has preserved that word for us today. It can almost be said that that letter is no longer for the Corinthians. It's for us. It's for his church today. Um, it's as much, it was a letter as much for the Corinthians just as much letter for us, and we need to pay attention to it. So what we're going to do is uh, God intended us for, for us to learn something from these words that we're about to cover this morning. And what I want to ask you to do is to prepare your heart and your mind to glean from the Word of God what He has prepared for you. What does He want you to understand from these passages? What does He want you to change? What does He want you to do? And we'll come back to this point a little bit later. Paul was, Paul was a, a man who was under constant attack by this church that he loved so much. And, and yet, where did he get this faithfulness, right, to, to labor with them and not chuck them out the window, but to stay with them and to be faithful to them amidst all the recriminations that they, and the falsehoods that were thrown about? And they marginalized his ministry. They marginalized him as a man. They marginalized the gospel. They were believing false things about the gospel because of the false teachers that had crept in. And in 2 Corinthians, we see a deep, extraordinary personal letter filled with expressions of emotion by Paul. And it gives us insight into this faithfulness uh, of a pastor for his people to shepherd them faithfully. And so we see a shepherd in action as we walked through Second Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, especially. But we see a theme emerge from the text, and it's Paul's faithfulness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. Paul knew what was best for them was the gospel. Paul knew what was best for them was that he remained faithful. But how could he do that? How could he labor in the trenches like that with, with the Corinthians? How could he remain faithful to preach the gospel and endure all these things for the hope of the Corinthians' growth and maturity in Christ? And I believe it's because Paul had something that was very special indeed. And we have it too, by the way. But for Paul, you have to remember back in the book of Acts, Paul and his missionary journeys, Paul, Paul and Silas were beaten and jailed in Philippi. They were abused and threatened in Thessalonica and Berea, even though they shared the gospel in these places. And they were even mocked in Athens. And so Paul comes to Corinth, right? And so this is what, what the Lord does for Paul in Corinth. And it's in, the, it's in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. And it says, The Lord said to Paul in night by vision, Do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. The gospel hasn't even been proclaimed yet, and already Paul knows that God has people in this city. 
Paul was faithful in his ministry to Corinth because he had a promise from God. There's a hint in that passage in that, that Paul had become afraid, and no one could fault him, really. I mean, his life had been threatened constantly. He'd been beaten. He was always in threat of attack. And, of course, that can weary his soul. Uh, but God gave him a promise. This is Paul's faithfulness, right? Like Abraham before him, Paul chose to believe God and act on the promises that he had received. After all, Paul wrote to the Romans of God's faithfulness as a means to fuel and sustain Abraham's obedience. In Romans chapter 4, verses 20 through 25, speaking of Abraham, Paul wrote, With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he is able also to do and to perform. Therefore, it was also credit to him as righteousness. So Paul, like Abraham, was fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. And Paul would call the Corinthians to that same pattern of faith. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapters 6 and 7. It says the pattern of holy living, it was a pattern, he had called them to a pattern of holy living because God who had promised is faithful. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16 it says, Just as God said, I will dwell in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So it is this faith, this trust, that we possess in the God who gave these promises, which fuels our obedience. To live lives in separation from all the ways of the world, to separate ourselves from the desires of our flesh, and to go on to perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, it's with this foundation, that was all an introduction, I'm afraid, but uh, it's with this foundation that we want to take a closer look at the closing of 2 Corinthians. And it's this foundation that supports all of Paul's actions and the foundation of such a beautiful and inspiring conclusion to a letter. So if you wouldn't mind, grab your Bibles and let's stand to the reading uh, of the Word of God. These are Paul's words to the Corinthians, and by God's sovereign choice and desire, God's words for us today. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You can be seated. The closing of this letter is quite special. As we go through it, I really want to encourage you to look at this as revealing the heart of a faithful shepherd for the church. Paul's motive is love, quite simply. Not only love for the Corinthians, but love for God. He loved them by giving them exactly what they need to continue in the faith. Paul is a faithful shepherd to them because God is faithful. Well, in verse 11, let's jump into it. We'll go to the very first word. And the very first word in that passage is finally. (laughs) And we might be going, finally, we're done with Second Corinthians, but uh, that's not at all what Paul meant here. And I think it's something that's really pastoral of Paul, right? Uh, in our Western mind, um, we look at Scripture through our Western mind, and I think if we do that only, we're going to fall very short and we'll arrive at a, a place that the Word of God did not intend. So we must interpret Scripture with a thing you called authorial intent. Authorial intent simply means that we examine the scriptures to understand what the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, intended his audience to understand by the words he was inspired to write. So we need to understand here that finally doesn't mean, ah, we're done. Finally means something much more precious. And I want you to understand this. Paul is finished, but he's not done with the Corinthians. No, the word finally here actually has the meaning of from now on, for what remains. 
Paul's telling them to go on in their faith. Do not look back. Do not recount the past. Rather, pursue the things that he's about to list for them. Now, isn't this something that we do, right? We, you and I, we're, we're products of our culture. We tend to live in the past, and we recall quite easily past hurts, pains, sins that we've done, sins that have been committed against us. And sometimes we allow these events in our life to define us. And we are products of our culture. Our culture loves to idolize being a victim. BLM, CRT, woke ideologies all exalt this victimhood. We play the victim quite easily. On past occasions, I've, I've counseled something along these lines. And it's this. It's, it's not what has happened that is as, that is as important as what you do next. I'm not saying that what has happened isn't weighty and even tragic. But it's what you choose to do next that can define the trajectory of your life. We've all been hurt. We've all suffered things. And there's no way to list them all. Um, But what we choose to do next can say, God is good. I have a faith that is unshakable and a faithful God. What has happened may have been weighty. Like I said, it could have been tragic. But it does not carry the same weight as what you choose to do next. Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us, we're not going to live in the past any longer. We're not going to recount all the things that have happened that have caused division, that have separated us and caused me to write such hard letters to you. No, let's move on from here for what is remaining. So after this encouragement, Paul lists several commands that we're getting ready to go through, but he wishes for them to go on to these commands, to engage in these commands. And we'll start with the very first command that is to be made complete, to be made complete. Now what's fascinating about this is that uh, your translation might say, be restored or aim for restoration. And that's fine. Those are, apps, those are perfectly good uh, translations. But me, be made complete uh, is the Greek word for, if you're interested, is katartizo. It's a common word. Um, but it means this. It means it's not necessarily that something is missing that needs to be added. Like if I got a baker's dozen, I got to find, I got 12, but I got to add one more to make it a complete baker's dozen, right? What he's actually saying is, take what is there and put it in order. That is the idea of completeness that he's after, the idea of restoration and perfection that he's after. What he's saying to them is, put it in order, rejoin what is disjointed, set what is broken, make the necessary adjustments, work at your restoration, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying to them, correct your behavior and bring it in line with what it means to follow Christ. This is the key command. Uh, you can liken it to an umbrella, right? Like we say about God's character, right? His holiness is the umbrella under which all of his other attributes fall, right? Well, this is the same kind of uh, thing with this command. It's, a, it's an umbrella command. Everything that follows is going to fall underneath this command of being made, of what it means to be made complete, to uh, make the necessary adjustments. Um, it's actually the overarching thing of both theme of both letters, which I find really interesting. If you go back to the very, very beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, verse 10, it says this, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So it can be said of this theme of completeness, of restoration in Christ, It's like bookends, and everything that falls in between those bookends has something to do with that idea of being made complete. So as we read 1 Corinthians verse 10, and we go through these commands, see if there's not a resonating theme that you hear. Well, he begins and ends with that same idea for the Corinthians, and so it is with us. This struggle for completeness, it's interesting, isn't it? Doesn't that kind of mark, isn't that a hallmark of the Christian walk? Right? We, we walk in obedience for a while, and 
Then we drift, get careless, complacent. We have to make an adjustment. We have to bring our life back into conformity with the Word of God and the will of God. It's so common to us because we're so weak and frail and dependent. Um, we desire to walk according to this new heart that we have, to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, yet we know that we, we miss the mark. You know, Romans tells us very plainly uh, our conduct, our conversation, our character is all corrupt. Well, while this might not be a, this might not be a perfect example, but I, I think you'll get the idea. Uh, the Christian life is very much like driving a car down a two-lane road, right? With your hand on the wheel, sorry for those young drivers here, with your hands at 10 and 2, um, we're driving down the road, and we're, we're going the speed limit for you young drivers. We're going the speed limit. And, uh, but none of us drives perfectly straight, right? Don't you find yourself making micro adjustments as you drive down the road, right? And there's a, a dotted line and a white line that, that kind of gives you, those, those, are the, those are the markers, right, that we try to stay within. And if we get a text or we're singing a song or we see a really beautiful cow out in a field, we drift, right? We take our attention off of what we're supposed to be focusing on and we drift and we get complacent and we have to make a major correction, right? We have to realign ourselves with the lines, with the standard. What's the standard? God's word. God's word is the standard for us. So, we go through life being restored, working on priorities, confessing our sins, being forgiven of our sins, correcting uh, and hopefully restoring relationships that we've broken, steering the car, if you will, and putting it back in the proper lane. The Christian life is a constant life of adjustment, growth, change. And we know because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that not one of us walks perfectly in the holiness and perfection we're commanded to by God. We do not attain his standard in this life, and thus we miss the mark of his holiness. So as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, we come to recognize and admit our frailness, our weakness, and so we flee to the grace of Christ. Even so, restoration is needed, so we confess and we receive forgiveness. We have fractured a relationship with a brother or a sister, and so we reconcile. These are all hopefully pictures of adjustments that need to be make, made as we walk the Christian walk. John MacArthur says, and that's exactly what the church is involved in. Any pastor who is faithful to the Word of God knows this. We're given the tremendous responsibility of getting the church in order. It's a never-ending battle. We do this all the time as we strive to bring the church into harmony with the Word of God and the will of God. That's what we do. He goes on to say, we labor to do what God commissioned us to do, and that's to get the church in line, to put the church in order. Where there are errors of theology, they need to be corrected. Where there are sins, they need to be eliminated. Where there are violated relationships, they need to be mended and restored. That's what pastors do much of the time, is work to put the church in order. But it's not just the pastors. It's us. We all have to work at, at keeping things in line and keeping things in order. That's what the church needs to do as well. You and I are no different than the Corinthians, unfortunately. Um, our culture is just like theirs. It's overflowing with all kinds of sinful defects. And the reality is uh, we're products of our culture, as I mentioned before. The sins that influence us before we became followers of Jesus Christ are the same sins that influence us and tempt us now. Before we came to Christ... Like the Corinthians, we were under siege from our flesh and the world and the devil. And even that happens after we come to Christ. But what other possible enemies could there be? Well, wolves. Wolves in sheep's clothing. That's exactly what the Corinthians were having to deal with. False teachers who had crept in and were telling the things that the Corinthians wanted to hear, tickled their ears, and yet led them astray, led them away from the gospel, which was no gospel at all. And Paul rightly attacked these men and called them what they were, false, false. The world like ours was filled with immorality, the Corinthian world was. In fact, it was, it was so bad that a word, a word was actually coined 
You know what that word was? To Corinthianize. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's kind of archaic. We don't use that word very much anymore. To Corinthianize. It meant to be with a prostitute. So if you were a Corinthianizer, it wasn't a compliment, right? But since our culture's like theirs, what would it be if we were called call your villains or whatever? I don't know. We wouldn't like that too much, I don't think. But the reality is, in spite of these influences, in spite of the immoralities, in spite of the false teachers who had crept into the church, Paul called the church to be made complete, to perfection, to restoration. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the overarching theme. Paul leads with it. Paul prays for it. And by his apostolic authority and a motivation of love, Paul commands it. This is what a pastor does. He says the hard things that you need to hear. This is obviously God's desire for the church because it's God who inspired Paul to write this. The faithful pastor's concern is that the church be adjusted, brought in line, prepared, equipped, ordered rightly according to my desire? No, the Word of God. The Word of God is the straight line so that we can determine whatever else is crooked. That's what we have to look at. That's our plumb line. To be ordered rightly means that there is sound doctrine, sound thinking, sound living that flows out of that sound doctrine. It's a theme of sanctification, right? Growing in holiness. But let me ask you a question. What needs to be brought in line? What needs to be adjusted? You have, and this is what I love about the gospel and the word of God, it informs us that we have everything already. Nothing's lacking. You and I lack nothing if we're in Christ. Do you understand that? The word of God tells us that we have everything for life and for godliness. God's given it to us. He's granted it to us by his power. We have every blessing, right, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, every spiritual blessing. We've got it all. Do we use it all? Do we take advantage of it all? Do we overemphasize one thing to the neglect of something else, right? Well, Paul's saying, don't do that. Use all of these things together to be made whole in Christ. What are some of those things? Well, what are some of the means of grace that God's given us, right? Prayer fellowship, study in the Word of God, right? Communion, teaching. What do we use? Use it all. Use it all to be made complete. All right. Uh, you, might want to, you might think that, you know, maybe Paul was just doing this to the Corinthians. Well, he didn't do that. He said it to all the churches and to one form or, in one form or another. And to the church in Ephesus, he writes, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. To the same church, to to another church, rather, in Colossae, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. To the church in Thessalonica, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. These are all things that are true for us. Well, just so you wouldn't think that it was just unique to Paul, John says something very similar. He says, the one who abides in him, Christ, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked, in perfect relationship with the Lord. So, be made complete. Put your life in order. Walk in Christ. Walk as Christ walked. Well, before we get to the other commands, I want to mention uh, another word. It's called the word rejoice. Rejoice. Um, it's actually a greeting, believe it or not. It's like saying, aloha, or shalom. (laughs) It's a very common greeting. But think about that for a minute. Rejoice. Um, It's like they would actually say this word to one another as they approached one another, kind of like hello. Rejoice. And when they left, hey, rejoice. Now think about that. That would be a really cool thing for us to say. And who wouldn't have the right as a Christian to say that word to one another, right? We have every reason in the world to rejoice, right? Joy should be something that characterizes the Christian walk, right? Yes, there's tragedy. Yes, things happen. Yes. But there is a deep-seated, 
unassailable joy because we know who God is. We know what he's done. And nothing, nothing can take us out of his hand. No one can take us out of his hand. As David mentioned earlier, our hope is sure. Right? Do we walk like that? Do we walk with that assurance as we discussed last week? I hope so. I hope so. Rejoice. As Christians, our lives should be characterized by this joy. It's a part of our legacy that the Lord left us. Above all people on this planet, we have the greatest reason to rejoice. Scripture says that our joy is to be made complete. Our joy is to be great. Our joy is to be abundant, exceeding, unspeakable, incessant, and full of awe. Why? Because our great God has made himself known to us. We know the gospel. We know our Savior. And more importantly, our Savior knows us. Right? You and I have been given the gift of faith. We're counted as righteous. We have eternal life with this God in every circumstance of life. There is nothing that can overpower the purposes of God on my behalf. Nothing. So we rejoice because our past is dealt with. Our future is secure. God is in control of my life for my good and for his glory. Let me say this. Uh, If you don't have joy, if you can't say to a brother, rejoice and mean it, I would encourage you to examine your theology. It might have something to do with that. Do you know and do you trust the God of the Scriptures as he's revealed himself in the Word of God? What is our proper response to the character of God? If you know him, it's joy. It's rejoicing. What is the proper response to uh, the saving work of Christ? It's rejoicing. And if you can't rejoice, then you might want to examine yourself, right, to see if you be in the faith. Joy is essential to spiritual well-being. That's what Paul wants for them. He wants them to be made whole, be made complete, and rejoicing is a part of that. So the next command that we come to is the command that says, be comforted. Be comforted. Well, Comfort back then uh, is a word called parakaleo, parakaleo. And parakaleo has this idea with it. It says, receive my admonishment. Well, that doesn't sound like it's very comforting, (laughs) right? Not so fast. Receive my admonishment. Heed my appeal. Or it could mean exhort one another, right? As you walk along the way, as you encourage one another, listen to one another. So the overarching theme, right, that Paul has is to be made complete. Well, this be comforted fits very well underneath this umbrella of completion and restoration. If we're to be what we ought to be as believers, and as a fellowship of believers, there has to be mutual submission, right? There has to be this idea of, hey, brother, uh, think of an example. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. That's an exhortation, right? Well, I see something in your life that's missing, that's not in accord with what it means to follow Jesus. And I need to love you enough to be able to have the courage to risk my relationship with you, to come to you and say, hey, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And you need to be in a place where you say, thank you for loving me so much. Right? That is not Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if any of you is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. That restore is the same word as be made complete. We are dependent, we are codependent and interdependent on one another to walk this Christian walk. Yes, we depend upon Christ, but God's put one another. He's he's made no mistake in assembling this fellowship, right, to bring you here to be in a place where you can be encouraged and walk one to another. But you gotta, you got to love your brother enough to do that, right? Be comforted. It's not a popular word. Uh, submission is not a popular word. But if you're going to be the kind of church you ought to be and enjoy the completion, the restoration, or the perfection in Christ that God desires for you, there needs to be this evident pervasive joy, but there must also be this submission to exhortations. Think about this, and I, 
I want to get to the idea of comfort for a second, okay? There's this idea. Think about this from the standpoint of I want you to meditate on it. I don't want you to TikTok think about it, right? Five seconds. I want you to meditate on this. Paul says be comforted. And yet we're talking about exhortation and submission. Well, what could be more comforting to know that my brother has come to me and says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good is one of many exhortations in Scripture as an example. But I pay attention to that exhortation. I listen to it. I submit myself to it. And I walk in that. Isn't that comforting? No? It should be. Peter and John were beaten and imprisoned because they obeyed the Lord and they rejoiced. They rejoiced at their suffering. It's not the same kind of comfort. But when I know that I've been obedient, when I know that I've done what's expected of me, when I know that I've heard something and walked in faithfulness to the Lord, that does something in my soul. It's comforting. Because I know that I've done something that pleases the Lord. Doesn't that please you? To know that deep in your soul? I hope so. That's the kind of comfort that Paul is, wants for the Corinthians. And that's the kind of comfort that God has for us. I'm going to say something that you're not going to probably push back on, maybe in your soul, but this is a character trait of all true Christians. Mutual submission. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Because we don't like it. As we grow in sanctification, we learn to willingly submit ourselves to the authority of God. We learn to submit ourselves to his will and to his word. And as we mature, as we mature in Christ, we also learn to submit to one to another. In fact, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ is part of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? No mutual submission. Syllogism. No Holy Spirit. That's not me. That's the Word of God. If I can't receive exhortation from a brother, then I'm not walking in the Spirit of God. Uh, if you want to fact check me, that's Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. <laughs> Next command is be like-minded. Be like-minded. And this is from the Greek word phroneo. It means agree with one another. Be of the same mind. Be thinking the same thing. Cherish the same views. Be harmonious. For us, it means having the same convictions about the gospel. About God, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about doctrine, about service, about everything that makes a Christian a Christian. This is a plea for conformity to the truth. Conformity to the truth. To borrow a phrase from John MacArthur, get in line with what the Word of God teaches. Agree with each other, yes, but agree with each other because you all understand the, understand the truth of God. It is decidedly not, let's go along just to get along. Nope. To the Philippians, Paul wrote in first, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ that you are standing firm in one spirit, one spirit, one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, single-minded in all that you understand the gospel the same way and that you're all united and stand for that same gospel. We contend for the faith that was once delivered together, shoulder to shoulder. And that's a challenge for a, biblical, from a, for a Bible church. Why? If you look around the room and you start talking with one another, we all come from different backgrounds and we're all raised up differently in the church. And yet we come to a Bible church and some are former Catholics, some are former Baptists, some are former uh, Charismatics, former Anglicans, former Evangelicals, uh, whatever. And we all have this different background and we bring all of that. We lay all that aside and we say, truth, the word of God, that is the plumb line. That's where we have to stand. That's where we have to that's what our unity is based on. One faith, one Lord. He says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of, Lord, of the Lord, entreat you, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep 
the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. There is one body. We are one body in Christ. One Spirit. Just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So this is the crux of the matter and how a church can experience the unity described in Scripture. It's because each member has the same mind about the Scripture. They understand there's a standard of truth. They each understand that the standard of truth is the word of the living God, and each member is in the living word. You get that? It's not just saying, hey, that's the word of God, but you're in the word of God. You're reading it. You're studying it. You're being affected by it. Showing up here on a Sunday and saying, I'm part of the church and not being, a part of the, not being in the word that you proclaim as the standard of truth. Come on. Let me exhort you. <laughs> Get in the word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the word of God have its effect on you. As you read God's word and there's a command, endeavor to obey it. And if you don't, flee to the cross and go at it again. Not in your power, but in God's, in the power of the Holy Spirit. To the degree that you are in the word, you can be united in the truth, and we can experience that unity comes from, that, it, that comes from thinking the same thing about the word of God. Paul's pointing this out is what God requires for the church. He's saying this is what must happen if the church is to be complete, to be restored and perfected and put in order or mended, right? And the Corinthians were a broken church. They were some messed up people, and we ain't no different. So if the church is going to obtain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, the church, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth, and it must bring its conduct in line with the truth, the word of God. Okay, the next command means is live in peace. Well, this simply means to be or act peaceful, live peaceably. Isn't that interesting that he started with uh, what preceded live peaceably was be like-minded? How in the world can you live in peace if you're not of the same mind, right? That's what was going on in Corinth. They were attacking each other. There were factions within the church. One group believed this about Paul. One other group believed this about Apollos. Another group believed this about the false teachers. They all were messed up. That's division. There was no peace in that church. And so Paul says, put things in order and live at peace. How do we do that? Well, whenever there's a fracture or a schism in a church, it's because someone believed or thought something else was true instead of the Word of God. Peace flows out of unity, which is all built on the Word of God. If you're not in the Word, the, 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 the likelihood of you walking in peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ is going to be very slim. Right? You need to be in the Word. Well, Sorry, I lost my place in my notes. Peace is the end of all factions. Peace is the end of all divisions and the end of all disagreements, especially those that characterize and plague the Corinthian church. It plagues our church. It plagues all churches. It's actually being called to the truth. And peace comes from submission to the truth, unity in the truth, Rejoicing in the truth, conform to the truth. And obedience to these commands comes with a precious promise. This is what is really amazing to me. If you do these things, the love of God and the peace, love, excuse me, the, love, the God of love and peace will be with you. This is a special promise. And it's the only time in all of Scripture that the phrase God of love is used. We see God of peace often. Uh, but only here is he referred to the God of love and peace. Something that's unique to the, to the Corinthian church. By his very nature, we know from Scripture that God is love. By his very nature, we know that God is peace. Love comes from him. Peace comes from him. 
He is both love and peace, and he is the source of love and peace for us. Paul's saying to the Corinthians and to us, if you want to enjoy the fullness of God's love and peace manifest in your church, then be about putting things back in order. Exhibit the joy that is rightfully yours in Christ. Heed the things I'm telling you. Walk together. Be of the same mind and enjoy the peace that flows out from that. Do you see how it all ties together? Well, finally, there's, uh, well, we're not finally yet, but we're headed that way. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, Many years ago, I went to uh, Ethiopia, and I got to experience a holy kiss. And I have to be honest with you, um, we just spent seven hours in a van, got into the church that we were partnering with to do a church plant to a, a neighboring town that was a Muslim town. And so all the, all the guys get out, pile out of the van, and we're, we're standing there just kind of milling about. And there's all of a sudden this receiving line just appears. And this old man breaks the line, and he walks right up to me, and he kisses me uh, on, on each cheek. And I have to be honest, I, you know, I'm, I'm a Western dude. And uh, I was shocked by that. And then I realized what had happened. And I was like, that man just gave me a holy kiss. And that was the coolest thing, right, to receive. And I wish that we had not lost that in our Western culture. Uh, when I went to, uh, to Eastern Europe, that's the greeting that they very commonly give to one another, um, you know, the cheek-to-cheek kind of thing. Uh, even men did that, and it was cool. Um, in Ethiopia, it's nothing for two, two men who are best friends to walk hand-in-hand hand or walk in an embrace. Here, you would obviously receive a label, but there, that was normal. That was normal, and I have to admit, it was so foreign to me that it, we were, I was standing there with one of my interpreters. Whoops. I was standing there with one of my interpreters, and, and <laughs> we're waiting for a ride to show up, and he reaches down and grabs my hand. I got stiff as a board. I didn't, <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. But again, it was that, wait a minute, holy kiss. He's expressing affection, right, in an appropriate way according to his culture. Uh, and, and there was nothing. There was nothing bad about that at all. Once I relaxed and realized what was going on, but it took a minute. I'm not going to lie. It took a second. Um, but this affection that that Paul is calling the Corinthians to. Now think about this for a minute. The church has been divided. Let's say you guys all follow Paulus, and all you guys follow Paul. And Paul's saying, "Now let's come together." And yet you can actually walk up to a brother that you've been in disagreement with and give them a holy kiss. What do you think that would do to the barrier that's been there? Tear it down. Work towards tearing it down. Right? Greet each other with a holy kiss. What about a brother who's being disciplined by the church? Right? To walk up and give that brother a holy kiss, saying, man, I got nothing against you, mate. You're my brother in Christ. I love you. I'll labor with you. I'll fight for you. I forgive you. Very precious indeed. That's what Paul's calling the Corinthians to. That's what God's calling us to. Put your love for one another on display. What would it mean for the world if you, two brothers and sisters walked up or two brothers walked up in the church uh, to go to the same church or knew that they were brothers in Christ and in the grocery store gave each other a holy kiss. What do you think that people would do? What was that about? Right? No, it's a holy kiss. Why did you do that? Because Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and he's my brother. No shame. Because there is no shame. It's a holy kiss. Well, finally, as we get to, get to the close, all the saints greet you. But it's really simple. It's probably just the, the saints that were with Paul at the time that Paul wrote the letter. He wrote the letter to the Second, to second Corinthians while he was in Philippi. And so it could have been the, the mates that were with him there during that time. It's really not that big a deal. But it does say something to the Corinthian church, right? It says something to them. 
in the sense that, hey, these brothers and sisters who are over here with me, they identify with you. They're greeting you, right? All the turmoil that we've been through, all the, all the ups and downs that we've been through, all the divisions, all the factions that we've been through, the saints greet you. You're still a part of the body of Christ. That's huge. In fact, at the very beginning of our, uh, it says, finally, brethren. Paul's saying, hey, I identify with you. I'm not letting you go. You, Corinthians, are my brothers. Well, now I can finally say finally. When we come to, to verse 14, it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul has written a lot of other benedictions and other letters, but none, none with the Trinity except this one. This is really sweet and precious. All three members of the one true triune God, all three of them are active participants in our redemption. A commentator of this fact writes when he says, Paul, Paul says, when I look at my redemption, it's all very clear. It was the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that saved me, and he came as a result of the Father's love, the love of God. And as a result of God's love and Christ's grace, I entered into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's the consummate statement of the Trinity, built on the redemptive picture. The scheme of salvation makes the Trinity very clear. God the Father loves. God the Father sends the Son into the world. His Son graciously provides salvation, the forgiveness of sin. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we are recipients of the Holy Spirit who ushers us into the fellowship of the body of Christ. So much more could be said about the Trinity and redemption. Time doesn't permit. But I want to ask you a question. Do you see how this blessing is tied to the commands that Paul just gave? It's like this. Do you see how the grace of Christ is vital in your being made complete? Do you see how the grace of Christ informs your comfort the grace of Christ is the basis for you being like-minded and how the grace of Christ provides the peace that he desires for you and for me. Do you see the love of, how the love of God is vital in your being made complete, how the love of God informs your comfort and how the love of God is the basis for your being like-minded and how the love of God informs your peace and is the fuel for your peace. Do you see how the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is vital to you being made complete. How the fellowship of the Holy Spirit informs your comfort and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is the basis for you being like-minded and how the fellowship of the Holy, Holy Spirit provides your peace. All that we enjoy, all the demands placed on us as Christians and all the grace, love, and fellowship are from this magnificent, holy God who loves us with a perfect love, who died for us, who will resurrect us, who gives us eternal life with him. It's because of this God that we can pursue the things that Paul urges us towards. And what's the result? The God of love and peace will be with you. How precious is that? To see God's love and God's peace manifest in this body and this place, wherever we go. Well, I mentioned at the beginning that we would revisit 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scriptures inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. What we've just read and gone over is the word of God for you. It's for us. Just as much as it was for the Corinthians. So here's a question. Will you determine to bring your life into obedience to the commands Paul just enumerated here. Will you determine to do that? Will you let the word of God inform what you need to do next? Well, what we're going to do for our edify time is I'm going to put some questions on the table to maybe give you guys some fuel for discussion, to maybe flesh out what you need to do. If you're a guest with us, um, our service will officially end here in a second. We have this really cool thing that we do is we break bread together. And uh, 
We're going to have some more tables set up here in a minute. And uh, I'm going to, as I close the, the message here, I'm going to ask our, our worship person to come up. And uh, the Lone Ranger. And, uh, and lead us in worship. But I just want to challenge you, encourage you, exhort you, be made complete. Put in order whatever is out of order. God has given you every means of grace. It's, it's right there for you. Every spiritual blessing is yours. Everything that you need for life and for godliness is yours in Christ. Um, if you don't know Christ, if you don't have this peace, this assurance that you're his and he's yours, that your sins are forgiven, would you come talk to me, talk to David, Tom? You can send Nick an email. <laughs> He's not here. But reach out. And if you don't want to talk to us, well, that's what the body's for. That's what we do with one another. We encourage one another. We help one another along the way. We heed one another's exhortations. To change our mind about who Jesus is. That he isn't just a man. He's the son of God. That he wasn't just a dude who died on the cross between two other fellows. He's the savior of the world and he shed his blood for our sin. And if you'll place your faith and your trust in that blood, just let the faith that you have to actually put your fanny in that chair, that's the kind of faith that, is, that we're talking about. You put everything, all of your weight, all of your life into his hands. You're saved. That's his promise. And you have the gift of eternal life. And now your life is forever changed, right? For his glory, for our good, come what may. Well, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll turn it over to David. Father God, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that Paul gave to the Corinthians. And Lord, thank you for preserving this word for us. Help us, we pray, to conform our lives to these commands that Paul has given and, and enumerated for the Corinthians, but now you've preserved for us. Help us, we pray, to be made complete. Help us, we pray, to be to submit to one another in, in exhortations and in encouragement to be comforted by those things because we see obedience in our lives. We see faithful walk with you in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be like-minded about who you are and what you've done about the gospel. And, oh, Lord, I pray that you could help us to live in peace. And we will enjoy the manifest presence of our Lord and Savior in this place. To the praise of your glory and the praise of your grace, we thank you. In Jesus' name.